I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome everyone to another episode of Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. And I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It's September 18th. I've got a great show for you this week. Yet again. Before I get into the nitty-gritty, dirty details of the show, I want to talk a little bit about what's happened to me recently this past week. Uh, do you really need to say recently when you say past week? Is that is that redundant? I mean, isn't that in and of itself recent? Hmm. Well, anyway, the week started with us noticing a small puddle, and we thought it was on our carpet, and we thought it was our daughter spilling water, which she's apt to do. Uh, And it ended up uh, where our water heater was leaking so badly, it was spreading throughout the wooden floor underneath, and it just, it, it got really bad. So we had to buy another water heater, and that is a absolute, it's an absolute nightmare. If you've ever bought a water heater before, I mean, I could have just went to like the Home Depot or something, bought it myself and installed it myself, but then I wouldn't have any sort of guarantee that it was done properly or had any modifications that might have been important done to it. Uh, because of the last time it was installed and code updates uh, and stuff like that. So we had professionals come in, which made it more expensive, I think, in the long run, and ended up being a lot better, though. It certainly looks good. It works well. Uh, It's more efficient than our last one. Uh, I made sure of that at least, and we get a tax write-off because of the efficiency and a rebate from the local gas company because of it as well. We're also going to be contacting our... um, uh, insurance in order to see if they'll, you know, repair the floor because of the damage and stuff. So, you know, fingers crossed. Let's see what happens there. On other news, uh, friends of mine also have grapevines, and because I just had made a batch of wine out of uh, my neighbors, because all mine were eaten up by doggone birds and what we think are midnight grape thieves, uh, I wanted to see if they wanted me to in exchange, make wine for them if uh, she she would make a cloak for me. And I talked to a number of people about making a ritual cloak for this coming equinox, uh, this coming weekend, and I'm very excited for it, by the way. Getting together with those of like mind is always a treat. You know, you, you never come out of it disappointed. And to perform a ritual with these people, I am I'm very excited very excited for. And the fact that now, you know, in trade, I'm going to be having this custom-made cloak, ritual cloak, it's it's very exciting. We went to the fabric store, which was an odd experience in and of itself. I've never gone in a fabric store before, and I felt really out of place. There were other guys there, um, I think a total of two other people, and one of them worked there sweeping the floors. 
So the ratio of man to woman was very, very heavy on the woman's side. Uh, but it was an experience that I'll remember. <laughs> it's weird because you walk in there looking like a regular person, like a regular man, and everyone looks at you like, what the hell is he doing in here? There's this this stereotype associated with people who go into fabric stores, and I am so far out of that realm, out of that stereotype, that even people who try to shove off that stereotype look at me like, what the hell are you doing here? Like the other guy that was in there. He's like, you don't belong here. This is a vagina zone. You, you know, you, you shouldn't be here. Like, like he has the card that allows him. He has the black platinum credit card that allows him into the vagina zone. And there's just no way any other guy could ever possibly get in there. Well, I got in, man. And I kind of liked it. <laughs> no, what I didn't like is is that I couldn't find exactly what I wanted. So we had to sort of make do with what we had. But in the end, I have every confidence that this is going to end up being a fantastic cloak. And also, I found out that, you know, we were going to the fabric store to pick out the fabric for the cloak. And then we went back and had me measured for the cloak. And I was going to be picking up the grapes at that same time. And we found out that her grapes have also been poached by presumably the birds which is very disappointing which tells me that we need to pick harvest the grapes at least two weeks earlier than we have been because we have both noticed that there are a significant amount of grapes and then suddenly as soon as there's that sort of small week long window of ripeness they just just consume them at an astonishing rate so we're gonna have to try to you know beat them to the punch hope that they continue to ripen a little bit, you know, off of the vine if we do it a little bit early. But it's like the only way we're going to be able to get it. It's it's crazy that we have this many birds tearing up our product like this. But what are you going to do? Anyway, I do have a really great show for you. In The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be talking about sexual drive and you're alive. It's an article that was in Letters from the Devil, written by Anton LaVey way back in the day. And I'm not meaning to rhyme, it's just... <laughs> Happens some of the time. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, anyway, um, it's in the the book compilation letters from the devil, um, published by Underworld Amusements. And I, I've talked about the book. I have featured an article on the book once before, and I'm going to do it again because I think it's interesting and it sort of fits the format in a loose way of the show that I'm giving you. So look forward to that. In Infernal Informant, why does the female orgasm exist? Nice article for you. And another one, how often did humans and Neanderthals have carnal relations? Not very. In Creature Feature, I'm going to be talking with Darren Deicide about his album, The Jersey Devil Is Here. And we'll talk about the launch party for the cocaine song and homebrewing. A couple really great things. This could be seen, I believe, as a part two to some earlier Radio Free Satan interviews like the Vasca Radio one uh, Darren Deicide was in. After listening to that, I thought there was a couple other things I'd like to talk to him about, like past music uh, influences and stuff like that. So look forward to that. It's a really great interview. Uh, Darren is a fantastic individual to talk with. Uh, he's very easy to talk to. He, he's uh, very uh, accommodating with whatever you you know want to spring on him. Um, and he actually is going to be playing a live song. So look forward to that. And I am going to, no matter whether we're long or not, 
deliver a bizarre of the bizarre. And this time, pregnant sex, it's the best. And that's going to be the conclusion of the show. So sit back, buckle up, be prepared for a sexually driven episode of Nine Cents starting right now with The Devil's Advocate. In this arid wilderness of steel and stone, I'll raise up my voice that you may hear. To the east and to the west I beckon, to the north and to the south. I show a sign proclaiming a death to the weakling, wealth to the strong. Can I get a hail Satan? I said, can I get a hail Satan? We are the Devil's Advocates. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. As always, let me preface this segment by saying that I am a Satanist. I am a member of the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. As I've stated already, this article is centered around the idea of sexual virility. So, uh, a gentleman writes in, uh, Harrison K. from Phoenix, Arizona, asking Dr. LeVay about ways to increase virility outside of love potions. And if there's any truth to it in, in the history of it and so on and so forth. And Anton LeVay really delivers here. Uh, he goes into great length talking about the history of virility and attempts, uh, medical and scientific attempts at generating it for men and this stems from a lack of sex drive or impotence or a desire just to have a a more vigor sexually and the article goes into great detail about it and it's written very well i highly suggest you pick up letters from the devil and read it but i think it speaks to something outside of the content here And Anton LaVey touches on it briefly, uh, very briefly in this article, but I think it bears discussion a little bit. And that's the idea that you are alive and you have a continued vitality based on sexual drive. Now, I know a lot of guys who, I don't know if it's because of age or because of chemistry or because of their partner, but they just don't have that active drive that they either A, once had, or uh, B, lost, or hell, C, never, never had, and just they're fine without it. And there's this idea that if you have a strong sexual drive, you will always be young, and it's that sexual drive that maintains youth. And that's sort of the uh, the fountain of youth, as it were, is, is is your desire to have carnal relations. You know, Satanism is based heavily around the idea that we are carnal animals. And to give in every once in a while to those desires and needs is healthy. Well, this idea is based around that. We can forever be young if we are never truly denying our sexual desire, our sexual urges. And if at any time we notice that we are no longer desiring as we had once, is that a symptom of death? Is that is that a tell that we're on the downslope of life? 
there's some other articles that I might talk about in, in future shows that Anton LaVey writes about. Um, and that's virility through connecting with uh, style of your era. Uh, elderly, for example, feeling like they're just every the world is passing them by and they're losing virility in life and then they go to the uh, a home um, an old folks home and suddenly they're surrounded by others of similar eras dressed in similar ways and that is the vitality they needed to come back alive sexuality is a lot like that i cannot for the life of me imagine not having a healthy sex life as a part of my life, and I really wouldn't want to. And I think those who strive to find hormone replacements and love potions and, and virility enhancements, they're just trying to tap into that also. I mean, the reality is we're made up of cells, and cells have a finite lifespan. They die off. Uh, life in and of itself is set from youth to death and we're all in this cycle. Now, granted, that cycle has been slowing as modern medical and scientific enhancements have, have evolved throughout the years, and our lifespans have extended significantly. So it's not crazy to think that it's going to continue in that trend in the future. Outside of that, outside of the physical lifespan of things, is, is your, your emotional state, uh, your your virility your your essence and you can always keep that young with sex you can always do that and it's actually become a problem uh since the dawn of things like um with pills like viagra they take care of the physical side of things keeping that blood where it needs to be but there's an emotional component associated with that and that's the virility that we're always looking for whether it's through hormones or or animal ingestion uh, or, or replacement and, and that's something that he talks to specific in this article like I said before it's written very well and it's very informative and it, you can, it's it's really interesting because it's sort of a period before our modern uh, technology. So, if you want to learn about the history of of virility enhancement or erectile dysfunction enhancement or love potions, you know, check out this this book. Check out this article. It, it's really really interesting. And I thought you know it just spoke to that idea that that we will forever be young with that fountain of youth that is sexual drive. I mourn for those who have lost it. It is, uh, it's a good thing. <laughs> Let's go ahead and move on to the Infernal Informant, shall we? Warriors of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the Infernal Informant. Alright, what do we have here? This is Salon.com posted Saturday, September 10th, 2011. Why does the female orgasm exist? A popular theory has been criticized as male-centric, but it might have unexpected feminist results. Decades of research have failed to answer the question of why the female orgasm exists. And two recent conflicting studies on the subject have hardly changed that. 
Interestingly enough, though, both focus on a theory sure to anger some women that their ability to climax is the mere byproduct of men's orgasm, which is a clear evolutionary purpose. We may not have proof of this one way or another, but it's worth exploring the potential cultural implications. The most obvious explanation for the female big O is that it motivates women to have more sex, resulting in more babies, or, in wonkier terms, reproductive success. Another intuitive theory is that it serves to cement feelings of love and intimacy, thereby supporting parental investment. Then there's the um, evocatively named sperm upsuck theory, that uterine contractions during orgasm help draw in little swimmers. But many of these approaches have been empirically discredited, and it's the byproduct theory that has been held in increasing esteem by researchers. The thinking behind the male nipples explanation, as I like to call it, is that women have the tissues and nerve pathways needed for orgasm simply because of their shared embryological origins with males, whose orgasms serve a clear evolutionary purpose. In other words, women have orgasms for the same reason men have nipples. Or, on the face of it, the byproduct theory seems rather male-focused, and maybe even anti-feminist. It falls right in step with the Freudian notion of women's penis envy. Men have prominent, easily orgasmic members, while you ladies and actually this article said we ladies, but I felt it a little weird saying we ladies, are stuck with our itty-bitty imitator, the clitoris. But, as Elizabeth Lloyd, a philosopher of biology, argued in her 2005 book, The Case of the Female Orgasm, Bias in the Science of Evolution, quote, The real problem with this view is that it assumes that in order to be really important, female sexuality, and in particular, female orgasm, must have been a direct target of natural selection among females. But there is no reason at all to think that only directly selected traits are important. End quote. She points to examples of varied traits that aren't directly selected. Refined musical ability, the ability to design rockets, and even the ability to read. On another hand, it's also possible that the byproduct view could actually support feminist efforts against the so-called medicalization of female pleasure. If female orgasm is seen as having no particular evolutionary function, but rather as an evolutionary freebie, then many diagnoses of female orgasmic disorder would be out the window, and women anywhere on the spectrum of orgasmic performance might be seen as normal. Lloyd writes in an upcoming article. She argues that this view, which she refers to as the fantastic bonus theory, has the benefit of casting all women as equally normal in their orgasmic responses to heterosexual intercourse. The account expects no particular adaptive set of responses to intercourse, and thus privileges none. Meaning, women who don't have orgasms at all are as normal as women who always have orgasm with intercourse. That just might throw a wrench into pharmaceutical companies' machinations over the potential for a female Viagra. Speaking of, Lenore Tiefer, 
created the New View campaign to challenge the distorted and oversimplified messages about sexuality that the pharmaceutical industry relies on. She wrote in an email that an orgasm is a nice thing, but it doesn't last very long, and it's not the easiest thing to have, so I think it's overrated. Tiefer, a psychiatry professor at New York University, quoted journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, the orgasm has replaced the cross as the focus of human longing and fulfillment. That line, she says, summarizes for me the symbolic importance of the orgasm in contemporary life. As for the uncertainty surrounding it, she says, it's mysterious, I think, because its symbolic value is so high. It proves to a partner and to oneself that one is sexual, satisfied, fully female, and yet the material essence is complicated. Carol Queen, a legendary staff sexologist at Good Vibrations, isn't convinced that the female climax is an inherently enigmatic creature. The idea that women's orgasm is mysterious is simply cultural, and has developed in a culture that actively refuses to give its youth good information about sexual functioning, especially arousal and pleasure, and which is loaded with subcultures and communities that actively encourage fear of sex, shame, body image issues, confusion about what sex means, and other responses that distance people from sexual possibility and pleasure, she says. The idea that women have a difficult time having access to pleasure, or scientists can't imagine why on earth that pleasure is valuable, that's just another layer of icing in its thick cake. Ultimately, of course, the cultural outcome and feminist analysis of the byproduct theory say nothing of its actual scientific merits. As Lloyd says, I'm not a believer in deriving social norms from biological findings, whether they're about adaptations or not. The cultural importance of the female orgasm doesn't have to be determined by its evolutionary origins. So much in our sexual lives is disconnected from baby-making. And let's not forget one of the things the birth control pill taught us. Separating pleasure from reproduction can be tremendously empowering. And fun. That's the article, and uh, let me sort of add a male view to this. Uh, it, it's funny because everyone knows it's difficult to gauge what will cause a female orgasm uh, in comparison to a male orgasm. I mean, seriously, all you have to do is uh, give a little rub like a genie lamp, and that's pretty much all that is required for us guys on the average. But you have to look at it. As, as a young man, there are, <laughs> there are like stages of, of victory uh, that, that we sort of notch on our belts. Warranted or not, and this is sort of how I grew up with it, there is the the um, undoing of the bra and the feeling of the breast. That That is a huge thing for a boy coming of age, uh, to feel a nipple on your palm. I mean, that is amazing uh, as a young man. So that's one. Um, another one is sort of just being able to get it in, as it were. You know, there's, you know, for someone growing up in a, uh, uh, sexually closed environment, um, uh, the female genitalia can be a maze of discovery. And it's actually really exciting to discover in and of itself 
though probably a bit awkward for the partner. Uh, but, you know, once you do, there's always sort of this little joking fun about, you know, trying to find the hole. And, you know, obviously, once you've uh, once you've matured and, and you know sort of the techniques, uh, you know, that old saying of if it ain't wet, it ain't ready yet. Well, then it's not so difficult, <laughs> you know. But as a young man, when you're just first, you know, uh, getting your feet wet, so to speak, uh, or other things, <laughs> you know, that's sort of the thing. So getting it in is a big part. So uh, nipple on your palm, huge, big deal. Uh, getting it wet, huge, big deal. And the last thing that you sort of do, and, and this is sort of downplayed in some cultures, and I think um, negatively, is is the female orgasm. You know, there's still some women that I talk to, though rare, but they still exist, that they, you know, they're married five, six years, and they've never had an orgasm with their partner. Now, this speaks largely to a couple of things that I've noticed. Uh, one, the downplay of personal experimentation. I cannot stress this enough. If you as an individual are incapable of bringing yourself to climax, then the chances of a partner being able to do it are slim to none. At best. I mean, of course, every once in a while, someone's going to stumble onto something, but really, it is sort of that, uh, you know, the lights are off and you're feeling the walls until you hit the door. I mean, that, that, that's pretty much how it is. So, unless you're capable of bringing yourself to orgasm, don't expect that any man of any age, or woman for that matter, is going to be able to do the same thing. Because the, the, the female orgasm is so crazy, like, and I'm going to be getting into some, to, into some adult verbiage here, and I, I hope you can sort of flow with me here. You know, uh, women are a, a mixed bag here when it comes to sensation and preference. I mean, guys, they're pretty easy for the most part. I mean, generally, you know, some guys like stock more than head, you know, if you're following me. Um, but that's about as crazy as it gets for us. You know, when you get into women, I mean, some women, they, they prefer the clit stimulus over any sort of penetration. Some women prefer outer um uh, outer wall penetration to inner wall penetrations. You know, some women are always having you strive for that G spot or, or even the A spot, um, if you believe that exists. So, and that's not even to speak of, of, of girth of the individual and in, in what length has to do with it. So there is a significant amount of complexity when speaking to what can aid a woman to orgasm versus a man. So when you're a young man and you're sort of going through this, it can be very confusing, it can be very exciting, but it can be very disappointing also. And so you sort of have that notch on your belt when you can actually, you know, achieve uh, the victory of making a woman orgasm on a regular basis. And like I said before, you know, you can stumble on every once in a while. But this is sort of one of those things that comes with maturity. Uh, you stop notching that belt and you just start experiencing and experimenting. Uh, but as a young man, as, as young children, you know, getting over that, that, that gigantic hurdle can at times be very challenging. And just like this article said, some women never orgasm. That's a huge deal. I say that because I, I, I live with this sort of, you know, longing for orgasm as, as uh, an individual goal. You know what I mean? And I think I'm not alone here. So it's, it's challenging when you're a guy talking about uh, a woman's orgasm, but that's not to underwrite it, and that's not to short-sell it. Um, 
some women just cannot stand the sensation of a man inside of them, and I can respect that absolutely. You're not going to be on my list, but <laughs> you know what I mean? So, why does the female orgasm exist? Well, who the fuck knows? What I do know is that for those who are capable of having orgasm, uh, it is genuinely a goal to attain. And it is a lot of fun getting there, but don't expect it to come easy if you're new at this. Um, and have fun experimenting. And that's the biggest thing, is to take this pressure off everyone and just stop and realize that this is not a competition. It is not about whether you can orgasm versus your girlfriends or anyone else in the world. It's about you finding the pleasure within yourself at the pace you're comfortable with. And it's a lot of fun, so give it a go, ladies. And why does a female orgasm exist? Hey, for no other reason, pleasure. What other reasons do you need, right? <laughs> All right, so that's enough for that or <laughs> I was going to say orgasm. That's enough for that article. Let's go ahead and move on to the next. Uh, this is a pretty entertaining one, I think. How often did humans and Neanderthals have carnal relations? Not very, they say. All right, this is an article from Ars Technia posted um, five days ago, uh, by John Timmer. How often did humans and Neanderthals have carnal relations? Not very. With the latest data pretty clearly showing that our ancestors had carnal relations with some of the archaic humans they met in Asia, a couple of secondary questions have come up. A paper in this week's PNAS attempts to answer at least two of them. How often does this interbreeding happen? And are we all carrying the same bits of Neanderthal DNA? The answers the authors arrive at are not often and no. We know currently that Europeans and Asians have about 2% of their genomic DNA that originated with Neanderthals and entered the modern human lineage in a process called introgression. But this could have come about several ways. For example, those regions could be the product of a single mating that was then selected for because they improved fitness. Alternatively, matings could have been more frequent, and the 2% of the DNA that remains is just what stuck around by chance. To answer that question, the authors built a population migration model in which they traced a modern human population that was growing and spreading against a background occupied by Neanderthals. They could vary the degree of interbreeding, then estimate how much DNA would remain in modern population. The model suggests that as few as 200 interbreeding events could leave us with about 1% Neanderthal DNA. 3% would only require about 430 matings. So if you assume that the two groups overlapped for about 10,000 years, that works out to once every 25 to 50 years. So it seems the interbreedings were rare, with the authors ascribing to either social stigma or, more probably, a reduced fitness or fertility in the offspring of these matings. Their model also indicates that with an expanding human population, these isolated events would occur near the edge of the expansion, and the resulting population would spread out in such a way that future generations would end up isolated from each other. 
this suggests that different bits of Neanderthal DNA would probably end up in a different regional population unless they were selected for through evolution. We don't know whether this is the case just yet, but the availability of Neanderthal, European, and Asian genomes should give us a way to test the accuracy of this prediction. That's the article. It's really short, sweet, to the point, and I wanted to bring this up because when I heard this and and, and when I read the article, I, I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, humans evolved out of Africa and we traveled across Europe into Asia and then from Asia over the land bridge that was there at the time into North America and South America. Following that progression of of human colonization, at some point there were humans left in Asia with the Neanderthals in that 10,000 year window. How much there are <laughs> there are a number of scenarios that I can imagine would cause a human uh, a homo sapien sapien with uh, Neanderthal to mate. Okay, so you have the sort of dare. <laughs> this is this is what I think is the least likely but still probable cause. So you have a small cultural uh, village of humans and you have this small uh, uh, traveling band of Neanderthals. One human looks at the other so uh, uh, look at them. It's hard for me to find a mate here and that's, that's a little funky. That's a little different. Uh, what do you think? Uh, what'll it take? You know, for you to get you over there and uh, get with one of those Neanderthals. And then I was like, um, I, don't, I don't know, like, give me like a bear pelt. You give me, you give me a bear pelt and uh, a stone dagger. A bear pelt and a stone dagger and I will get with that Neanderthal. It's like, ah, oh, that bear pelt, that's a pretty expensive bet. But, ah, oh, man, I would love to laugh at you while you're getting with that Neanderthal. You've got a deal. So you have sort of that best scenario where they're barring back and forth and joking and, and <laughs> they look across, okay, you know, here we go. So they like wander up this Neanderthal. So, uh, hey baby, how's it going? You, <laughs> you, you hunt here often and she's like, do much, I'm Because she has fucking have like <laughs> the evolutionary trait of communication like the humans do. Uh, okay, so, so that's one scenario, the dare. And then you sort of have um, the drunken accident. Now, everyone knows that there's been fermenting for a very long time, so you get really drunk and you just happen to wake up nothing with Neanderthal. Okay, well, it's going to happen at some point. Deal with it, right? Um, and then there's going to be sort of that, like, a, I can't help but think there had to be one of those Romeo and Juliet moments <laughs> where they're like, no, you cannot sleep with that Neanderthal. You cannot have her, a, a wedding. You, that cannot be your breeding partner, this Neanderthal. They are of horrible Neanderthal stock. They are more ape than man. Do not. And the Neanderthal family was like, because <laughs> they don't speak at all. It was at me like, don't, you know, they're hairless. Why would you want to mate with a hairless ape? So, okay, so there has to be some sort of like cross-cultural war with breeding. Uh, and I, I can't help but think that maybe even maybe, you know, along the way, there was just sort of this like, meh, I'm bored. The Neanderthal's right there. 
it's hairy, it's stinky, I'm not as hairy, but I'm stinky, why not, you know, I mean, sometimes you're under these vast stars, you don't have any city lights to drown out the midnight sky, the Milky Way is just right overhead, sort of setting the mood, <laughs> maybe it was Imagine Made in Heaven, <laughs> beautiful, <laughs> Uh, okay, so so you, you look at it from the stance that at some point there was some motivation for these people to get together, these two species. Let's just be happy that it ended there, right? I mean, <laughs> how far down the line did, did uh, Homo erectus stop fucking apes? You know what I mean? I mean, there's, there's sort of a window of time that you're looking at in, in our evolutionary past where... It was okay to have sex with an ape, with a monkey, and then suddenly after that point, you were like, uh, you know what, we're sort of not really, I mean, we don't have tails anymore, so, uh, you know, I can find the tail sexy and all, but it's not really my thing anymore, you gotta kind of stick with your own species now, I, I would like to know that sort of bridge in, in our, our human history, where we stopped the ape fucking, we were still okay with the Neanderthal fucking, uh, but then at some point we were just like, mm, even that's a little too ape-ish for me. You know, I mean, we're talking about like hundreds of thousands of years or billions of years, but, you know, there was still a point. I mean, someone along our history was like, I could, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, you're in a club and you're seeing uh, uh, other uh, men and women. You know what I mean. And you look at them and you're like, maybe in four or five more drinks, but not right now. <laughs> well, just remember that at some part in our human history, there was a human looking at an Neanderthal like that. <laughs> maybe in four or five more honey wines. <laughs> but at this point, maybe not. <laughs> I just think it's funny to look at it like that because there there is sort of that overlapping zone. Where it was totally okay. <laughs> and, and I think that's pretty gross and pretty weird, but it was there. <laughs> and don't tell me you listeners wouldn't have done a Neanderthal if you had the chance. <laughs> okay, well, maybe not. <laughs> I don't mean to insult anyone here. Uh, okay, so that's all I have for this Infernal Informant. A little weird and quirky, a little sexual. But that's how I like it, <laughs> and I hope you do too. Uh, I'm going to take a bit of a break recompose myself. Let's dive right into Darren Deicide's interview in the Creature Feature. Hello, my name's Dave Ingram. And I'm Donovan. And we are Metal Breakfast Radio. Inviting you to join us with a few beers each week. For a dose of metal scrutiny. Some verbal skullduggery. And a hell of a lot of rubbish. Rubbish! Find us on metalbreakfastradio.com, darksentinel.dk, and radiofreesatan.com. Prepare for incoming message. 
Prepare yourself for Deep Six Radio. I am Matt, host of Deep Six Radio. And I am in Russ. Yes, we are. So if you want to be one of the six taking on the oh-so-lovely Idris and want to be featured on the show... Send your emails... And MP3s... To us at... Deep6... At RadioFreeSatan.com Include a bio... And anything you want mentioning on air... We are open to any genre... Apart from rap... Deep6 also includes a fine selection of alternative rock... As well as multiple other genres... So why not jump on the roller coaster? That is Deep6 Radio... Deep6 is available on... RadioFreeSatan.com And also iTunes... A week later, we, we look, look forward, forward to, to you joining us. End of the line. You know, dogs are different than cats. And hey, what if Jack Nicholson were? Hey, what if we are the world was sung by the cast of Friends? I think it might go something like this. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Leno. Anyone remember when I was funny? Eat Doritos. Ladies and gentlemen, Dane Cook. Are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses? Sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before? Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief. A show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. Carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Are you looking for music from the 80s and the new wave, post-punk, and other hits? Jay Nothing, the host of The Metro, will take you back to the 80s with songs that made the decade of me so memorable. Get the weekly updates at RadioFreeSatan.com. And remember, Hail Satan. The sky is dark, moon piercing the night. Through the trees, the damsel in distress comes, breaking through the underbrush. Fear painted on her face. The darkness hunting her is near. She swamp, water slowing her escape. The creature nears, the damsel turns, hands rising to her sides as her last is effort to thrust the creature back. Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. I'm being joined by Darren Deicide. We're going to be talking about his earliest musical influences, his new album, uh, the new music video that was just released, hopefully, and uh, maybe what's coming in store in the future. So, Darren, thank you so much for joining me. How are you tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you so much, Adam. Uh, it's truly a pleasure to have you on the show. I've just recently been introduced to your music, and... Wow, I mean, really great stuff. What I what I find a lot in, in common with a lot of um, satanic... I don't know that you would ever say that your music is influenced um, with Satanism or anything, but because you're a Satanist, 
uh, a lot of artists that are Satanists sort of fall into a similar line with, with what they produce. It's either um, atmospheric or ambient, or it's uh, uh, in, uh, like, like death metal or something like that. Yours is very, very different, and really in line with something that's really close to my heart, and that's rock and blues. So I was, I was very shocked and surprised um, uh, to, to hear you out there, and I didn't know uh, anything about you until I started hearing some interviews and uh, listened to your music, and I maybe want to get to know a little bit more, if you're willing. Can you tell us what some of your earliest musical influences are? Well, I have a lot of different influences. I come from a pretty rich musical background in the sense that my family's musical, not like Partridge family musical. (laughs) (laughs) I lived in an environment where there was music all the time. And I also lived in Chicago, which is an environment that's permeated by the influence of blues. So, you know, it was was sort of the fabric of life in a sense for me. It was very natural for me. I never really was taught the blues in a formal way. I took piano lessons when I was very, very young, but I learned classical. Oh, nice. Yeah. In retrospect, I wish I learned boogie-woogie piano or something. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing against classical. But um, but so so everything I've learned in terms of blues and its lineage is something that's either been self-taught or mentored to me by somebody that I workshopped with over guitar. Um, so so as far as influences go, you know it's it's very hard to say because I listen to so many uh, different genres of music. I think it's important as a musician to do that because. If you listen to one, you sort of tread this dangerous water of sounding generic eventually, I think. And so I like to keep my musical plate diverse. And so I, I, I absorb influences from all sorts of directions, even though um, rock and blues are uh, are primary influences. And, and on a related note from what you were saying, I'm... I'm I'm often surprised at how few Satanists know anything about the blues, considering its diabolical roots. Yeah. It's, it's actually an art form that's very steeped in diabolism, and, and, and consequently rock and roll is too. So it's, it's, it really is not something so detached mm-hmm. from the Satanic world as people think. It was easily the most carnal and... Uh, um, boundary-pushing art form of its time, yeah. and, and now is easily also perhaps the most influential genre that Americans created. Nice. Yeah, I, I know a handful of, of fellow Satanists who uh, know a little bit about it, and I'm actually involved in a project with a couple of them right now, so yeah, it's I'm a, a gigantic fan of uh, not so much Chicago electric blues, but more like Southern, you know, Dixie blues, um, like Muddy Waters plantation work and stuff like that. Yeah, the early Delta players were really—you can really hear the, the West African influence, and the West African influence is very much related to voodoo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the the early blues stuff, the deep blues, the Delta stuff has that sort of voodoo flavor to it. And, uh, yeah, it, it makes for a wonderful, dissonant, pentatonic sound that uh, you don't hear too many people, uh, yeah, outside of metal and a few other things, like ambient, as you mentioned, 
they're still those genres are still exploring it. But you know, playing with the double scale nowadays is something that uh, that is you don't hear too much about. It's something that's been pushed to the margins a little bit more. Unfortunately, well, let's talk about some of your uh, albums here. Right now, you're uh, going around promoting the Cocaine song and uh, more aptly the Jersey Devil is Here album. What are some of the other albums you've put out? I put out an album that was when I first started doing things. We're talking years ago. It must have come out in 2003. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was called Rock Until the Apocalypse. And, and, you know, in retrospect, it was a really hackneyed sort of thing that was put together. Because <laughs> I did it in one take mostly, and it's a lot of songs I don't even play anymore. A handful of them I do. Um, but it was it was sort of the incipient early versions of what I was doing. Uh, then I did Temptation and the Taboo Part 1, and uh, that album is a bit more conceptual and a little bit more uh, out of balance uh, compared to what people are used to from me. I really feel like The Jersey Devil Is Here is, is closest thing to a quintessential sound I might have, but even that's continues to evolve you know i think every every artist is on a journey of sorts and i think that my future stuff is also going to reflect that well speaking to that for a second do you think that you'll ever bring in any of that um piano um into uh, the music that you grew up with i suppose anything's possible <laughs> that sounds like a no <laughs> Well, like I said, I never really learned piano to the extent that I'd like to have learned it. And also, I don't have access to a piano right now. Although it's funny because when I do get put in front of a piano, all this crazy stuff comes out of me that's been buried for so long. But in order for me to really get comfortable with piano playing, I'd need a piano again of some sort and really hash it out. Um, What is happening more, though, is I'm collaborating more with other artists and uh, and really seeing what the uh, what the cross pollinization of, of other artists does to, to my creativity which is fun nice you've also actually been included in some compilation CDs right yes so uh, can you speak to those at all what that was like um, having your songs selected and you know put into this um, this format uh, I've only been in a couple, and they weren't huge deals. They were just uh, smaller projects that a lot of them were punk-based. There's sort of a confusion about my sound in the sense that people sometimes don't know whether to call it punk, whether they call it rock and roll, whether they call it blues. So I have this ability to chameleon into a lot of compilations, <laughs> which nice. is worked to my advantage. And of those two, one was called, I believe, Binge Smoking and Chain Drinking, <laughs> and the other one was a Sweet 13 Records compilation. That one was a, a bit more eclectic, but the, the binge drinking or binge smoking and change drinking one, that one was, uh, was very punk-based. It was done by a radio station called Hussy Skunk in Ohio. Huh. Nice. Yeah. Was, Let me ask you about this again, too. Um, so going back a little bit to your second album, Temptation and the Taboo, Part 1, when when an artist puts a part one, do you all into the title? Do you always plan on releasing a part two somewhere down the line, or uh, I, I mean, what's the idea behind that? I don't know if I'm going to do a part two. <laughs> so what, I guess my question would be, what prompted the part one? 
I enjoy the mystery that it creates. <laughs> nice. Mission. And, and, you know, I, I, just as you are wondering yourself whether or not there's going to be a part two, who knows? The inspiration might pop up. We'll see. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very cool, man. <laughs> I, I've always wondered that because I see it a lot. And, and most of the time, there never is a second one. So I'm always, like, <laughs> I'm always curious about that. Maybe um, I'll the trend and do a second one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so looking back. What were some of the lessons you learned um, as a beginning artist uh, when, you, when you were first transitioning into guitar and singing and everything? Well, uh, you mean from the artistic end or the industry end? Uh, let's cover both if we can. Let's start with artistic. Well, on the artistic end, uh, really, uh, you know, it's, it's really important, I think, as an artist to not throw away the lessons of the past. And that means really knowing genre and discipline and learning the, the things that have been explored, you have to know the rules in order to break them. Yeah. And so, so I, I, I think uh, the past, I don't know, I've been doing this now for about 10 years. Golly. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I had a moment of clarity. Uh, yeah, so um, in those, the past 10 years, it's, uh, it's been a learning experience in that sense, learning about the blues lineage, learning about uh, how rock and roll came about, what it is. Uh, those are all important lessons. On the industry end, I would say that what I've learned is if you want to do this shit, you better do it for the love of it. Because as an industry goes, as what music is, it's rotten and awful. And <laughs> you're dealing with a bunch of people who are have fragile egos who are fighting for every little scrap of meat, and they will backstab you, and they will treat you like crap in order to get what they want. This is a very disgusting industry. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you have to go into it with eyes wide open. You have to do it for the love of the art. And if you're doing it to be some sort of big pop star, get a real career. <laughs> get a fucking lawyer or something. Don't, don't taint the music industry with your nonsense. Hell yeah. Well, let's talk about the uh, the release party for the cocaine song. If you're if you're all right with that, sure. Oh, it was a blast. It was so fun. How was the release premiere party for it? Like- it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It was at our bar in New York City, which is in the heart of Manhattan. Marilyn Mansfield hosted it, and and I'm sure you know about Marilyn because she's yeah. sort of to avoid right now. Yeah. <laughs> And it was uh, it was it was a real cornucopia freaks weirdos satanists Lindy Hoppers uh, all sorts of people, and nice. it was really a fantastic time. Really, really great night. So, were you was was it centered around your song and then the premiere of the video, or or uh, were you sort of uh, put together with um, uh, I guess the the movie, the film? Yeah, it, that was certainly the focal point. The night, though, really was an interesting carnival of things because we also had Lady Zombie who was there, and Lady Zombie is a fetish model and a dominatrix, and we did some pretty sexy skits to John Lee Hooker songs. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) And we also had comedian Heather Height who was there and David Harris from Hate Speech Radio, and they did a little bit of their own thing 
laying some comedy on the masses. <laughs> and we had Brown Burger D. Relic, who's a fantastic blues man and very, very old friend of mine. And Matt Pless, who's also a fantastic artist. So it was really, it was, it was quite a diverse arrangement. It was really interesting to see it all come together. I like the fact that everybody was express, expressing their individuality. That's what matters the most to me. Yeah. So what was the concept behind the Cocaine Song music video? The Cocaine Song music video is multi-layered in its meanings, I would say. Yeah. And I, I would like everybody to take a little something out of it. And if you pay close attention to everything, you'll notice all the layers. Uh, but the, the entire uh, concept embodies this questioning of the monoculture that comes out of television. Mm-hmm. And also people's relationship to it, which is really the crux of what the song is about, even though it uses the lyrical device and trapping of cocaine, which is, you know, something that's a time-honored tradition. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a powerful metaphor, so... Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 addictive substance that tends to ruin your life. And, yes. you know, television, I don't think, has given been given the ample... A parallel to cocaine that it should because it really has a similar potential and we wanted to have a video that was sexy and at the same time poignant and maybe a little unsettling too for some people <laughs> so we wanted to take the, the the medium and put it in a new light and uh, the the symbols that we use and the sort of alternate surrealist realities that we put together are about that nice this man's journey into uh, a self-destructive mode. And, yes. Well, what was it like uh, specifically recording the video? I mean, as an artist, there has to be this kick-ass feeling of, you know what, I've got a couple albums out now, I'm getting a lot of attention for my hard work, I'm, I'm putting together this video. I mean, is there just this excitement to it that, may eclipse the message or were you just so on you know feet on the ground focused on on what it was about that you may not have paid attention to that sort of euphoria that might come along with it probably more of the latter (laughs) (laughs) because it really was not an easy experience i have to say it was a lot of work and and you know we did it on a very tight budget so we were doing things that were in essence shortcuts and I had to dig around New Jersey and find things like gurneys and medical bags and <laughs> all sorts nice. of nonsense. So I, it was it was really at, at points a treasure hunt, at points a virtual aneurysm of stress. <laughs> uh, you know, the actual recording once it got to the the actual filming of the video, it really was a, an an exhalation for me, probably not for Gabriel because he's a <laughs> and he had to hold it together. But, uh, you know, it was uh, for me, Marilyn, and everyone who was involved, it was really <laughs> a great time. We had a lot of fun. I mean, how can I complain? I got a bevy of sexy nurses in my house changing <laughs> my apartment. I mean, there's just nothing really to complain about at that point. <laughs> Do you have any any props you want to give out to uh, any of the people that helped you with that? Oh yeah, there were definitely some people who who were really integral to it who weren't visual. They weren't in the, the film, 
uh, Cody Fultz and Wanda Gates from Left Hand Media were very important. Adina Dennis, great friend of mine, who uh, is the host of Naughty Bits, nice. uh, he, he was helping with a lot of things, uh, just even just dirty stuff like hauling equipment and whatnot. Then um, there was uh, Zoth, Zoth Amog, uh, Marilyn Mansfield's husband. He was also very, very important. So, uh, yeah, all in all, uh, there were some people. There were there were more people also. I'm trying to remember everybody. But That's right. yeah. Johnny H. over in California, thank you very much for helping me drive a van around. And find <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that's awesome, man. I, I, I enjoyed the video a lot. Um, I think it helped uh, bring home that metaphor that may have been lost to the, um, you know, the, the casual listener um, that you were, you were planning on. What's next on your plate? Well, what's next is my 7-inch. I'm going to venture into pressing vinyl. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I've come to a point where... I'm trying to evaluate where this music industry is going to go, and CDs seem to be more or less a dead format, I would say. Yeah. We're kicking a dead horse around. And I'm seeing a lot more people that are interested in the vinyl format, because the vinyl format is a very particular sound that has not been able to be replicated in digital. Mm -hmm. It's There's a lot of good reasons for that, and audio engineers would be even better at explaining how the natural compression of vinyl creates that very live sound that you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, that's my phone. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's high time for me to put out some vinyl and, and give it a shot and see if this experiment is something that has any interest. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the songs be in that format with that type of sound. Also, the songs I do put on vinyl, I... Perhaps I'm going to make them exclusive to vinyl, a little treasure for the people who are dedicated audiophiles and record collectors like myself. And so it'll be a little bit of a treat, something that um, that really will only be available to them. Oh, yeah. Well, i got to say, one of my favorite albums is um, L.A. Woman, and I have that on vinyl, and it's amazing sounding. So, I mean, if you can get that... I, I think that's the true home of the blues anyway, Um at least in my experience with it, uh, sitting on the porch with, uh, for me, uh, uh, um, a glass of Bushmills and just kicking back, listening to some uh, crackly, staticky blues. I mean, that's just like, that is it for me, you know? So if, if I can get some of that on your songs, that would be, that'd be badass. Uh, you're a true blues man at heart, Adam. <laughs> I try to be. What's, um, what, what song are you going to be pressing onto the vinyl? I'm going to be pressing... A song called Bomb This Joint, and it's a fast boogie song. It's, it's sort of in the, the hooker boogie tradition. Nice. So it's going to be one of those really quick danceable songs, and uh, the, the title is inspired by a term in Lindy Hopping called Lindy Bombing, and it's an idea that you sort of show up to any sort of music event and then all of a sudden just start busting out some insane Lindy Hop and taking over the dance floor. So it's sort of a, a call to arms to take over. And I'm going to be putting that on the A side. And on the B side, I haven't decided actually what's going to be on the B side. 
I'm going to record one song that is going to be a remake of a song that was on the Jersey Devils here. It's the song Hudson River Hangover. That song I did at the time a certain style, I guess classically influenced, but I'm going to put a little bit more of a groovy, bluesy Robert Johnson feel on it for this and see how it turns out. Otherwise, I'm going to put this other song called Who Got Miss Liberty, which is uh, something I play on my Stella guitar. Nice. Well, is there any way I could get you to give us maybe a preview of that bluesy take on your song or, or maybe a different song? Yeah, I could do Who Got Miss Liberty. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Now, everyone out there, keep in mind that you know this is being recorded via Skype, so the audio is not um, representative of a, a polished, produced product by Darren Deicide, so just keep that in mind. Adds to the charm. Mm-hmm. Here we go. This song is called Who Got Miss Liberty.
recorder did it justice <laughs> that was pretty cool <laughs> thank you so much for for playing that i mean that, that kicks some serious ass uh, it, it's really nice talking to you if we could go slightly off topic for just a minute i was listening to the vasca radio interview and very briefly you mentioned that you were a home brewer i'm a home <laughs> brewer as well so just out of curiosity yeah uh when and how did you get into it wow uh <laughs> I got into home brewing a couple years ago, I'd say, and uh, I really just learned it via my friends who were doing it, and it's been a sick, very quick spiral since then. <laughs> I really love it. I, I really do, and uh, I'm actually going to enter a beer in a homebrew competition this October. So Which one? It'll be the Jersey City Homebrew Competition. I'm going to be doing my hurricane ale, the ale that I made during the hurricane that just happened. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> what is the, is it an amber? Or? It's an amber wheat. It's a combination. Nice. Yeah, so, so what's your favorite beers to brew? I'm a stout man, as well as a, a wheat and amber man. Not really a hop head. Yeah. Not so much into that, and uh, I tend to steer away from porters and brown ales and things like that, anything that gets overly malty. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, and I like experimenting with weird hybrids, hence the amber wheat. That was a successful one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's part of the fun of brewing is is sort of experimenting a little bit, and, and even the times when it's terrible, at least you'll learn a little something, you know? Oh, isn't it great? The, the just ability to just, you know, work a little bit of, of wizardry and, and see what you can uniquely make to to put people under your beer spell. <laughs> and that is, like, genuinely, that is, that is like, a, a serious callback to, you know, some primal alchemy, you know? I mean, how many people can say that they're literally brewing a potion that is going to draw people to them just, uh, you know, just to get a, a, a taste of that uh, that that potion that you created. I mean, it's just I don't know. There, there's something something very um, arcane about it that you, I don't think you get in many other uh, avenues. You know, absolutely. And there's really an explosion of it lately in America. Ever since the home brewing laws were finally dismantled, and we're seeing home brewing and craft brewing starting to surpass Europe now and you know Europe is pretty much the pedigree of modern brewing so the fact that America is having this beer renaissance is really fantastic yeah well that's great it's always nice to meet another home brewer and uh, you know find out their preferences and sort of uh, get a taste of what it's like on you know someone else's shoes in that in that arena I think it's pretty awesome well uh, you know, Darren what's your, uh, oh, what's your specialty Adam Oh, Pilsner, man. I am a... See, I, I started brewing with a penchant toward stouts and um, porters. 
Uh, I transitioned a little bit to Scottish ales, but I mean, truly, my my heart it, just from doing it for a couple of years, it, it's all come back to a pilsner. For some reason, I've got this like this bohemian pilsner that I can make that has like this second level of, of uh, drunk that comes along with it. So you're like enjoying this great multi, you know, disciplined flavor, and then suddenly just like hits you. And the back end of it, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. It's it's really good. If you're ever ever coming over to Utah or anywhere on the West Coast, we should try to get together and uh, have a little taste test. Oh, absolutely! That sounds like a rain check being formed right there. Yeah, pretty soon. <laughs> awesome. Sounds All like right. you have like a wormhole pilsner right there. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> well, and now I'm, I'm probably like building up. You're gonna try and spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, it, if it, hey, you know, I've made stouts. I had I made a stout that was a flop, and my friend tasted it, and his first reaction was, "Wow, that tastes like a now and later." So I tried. To <laughs> <get that. laughs> you know, when it, when somebody says that after tasting your beer, you have to hit the drawing board. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, it's been really great talking to you, Darren. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for playing your song and. For the nine cents listeners out there, if you if you haven't picked up um, the latest album, if you haven't seen the videos, I don't know what the hell is wrong with you. You've got to get over to Um Is there any way people can contact you? DarrenDiaside.com has a contact form there. People want to contact me, DarrenDiaside at Gmail. Those are the easiest ways. And to pick up your music, would you prefer them go to your website or? That's one of the ways. That would be good. It's available through many channels. There's stuff on Amazon, eBay, everywhere. So it doesn't take a genius to find it. Uh, All right. (laughs) Well, look up Darren D's side. Help support an amazing musician. And, uh, you know, one of the few gentlemen actually trying to keep the roots of uh, blues and rock alive. Uh, It's been a real pleasure, man. Hail Satan. And I'll say thank you, Adam, and you're doing a great job. I love this radio show. It's, it's, it's <laughs> funny. Keeping it fun and on point with <laughs> true philosophy. And-, to. and that's where we'll stop it for the interview. It was a real pleasure to talk to Darren. Uh, he's a stand-up guy and a, really uh, a fantastic musician. Um, I only wish that that live recording would have been... Um, well, better. I mean, you know, you're dealing with the internet and, you know, existing microphones that are not studio quality. But I have to say, despite all of that, it was still pretty damn good. I think you'll agree. And I promised you at the top of the show we would have a Bizarre Bizarre. And uh, let's dive right in, shall we? <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bazaar of the Bazaar. Alright, like I said at the top of the show, this Bazaar of the Bazaar, we're going to be talking, oh yeah, about the best pregnant sex. It really is the best. And like this entire show... Uh, this is adult, so please don't be listening to this around kids <laughs> at all. It is certainly not at all a kid topic. And I would never have thought about this, ever. And I was completely ignorant until uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child. 
and I was sort of opened to this entire new level of um, intercourse. And it sounds weird, and, and I have to say, it sounds weird me saying it, but it's true. Like the, it's a common fact that there's a lot of hormones running around and, and sort of butting heads while a woman is pregnant. And there's a lot of things going on with the chemistry of her body and everything. And so, you know, one size does not fit all here. But in my experience, there is another level of, uh, of passion, of, of uh, fury that comes with sex while a woman is pregnant. And this does not span the entire nine months or however long they happen uh, to be pregnant. Uh, and it does tend to vary in some minor you know, moments. But it, it stands the truth for me that there were times when, you know, a, a woman has a natural uh, lubrication about her. And, you know, this sounds a little weird, but when she's pregnant, it's that times ten. It was insane. And, and, the, and the, 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 the lust and the fury of passion that came with it and the natural glow of a woman while she was pregnant and, and the fact that she has another, another life inside of her and just, you know, all of these things coming together made for an amazing time. I mean, just amazing that after, for years after, I would still think about those, those moments that we had together during the pregnancy. And, and I just, I couldn't help but get excited about it. So when it came time for us to decide on having another child, uh, there was a lot we took into consideration. But when we did finally accept that, okay, you know, this is what we're going to do, I was thrilled sexually. I mean, it was just like a, a child at a candy store because I knew what was in the mail, you know? <laughs> like I knew what was coming and I was so excited for it. And you know what? Lightning struck twice because it was the same exact thing. And, and you know, it had to be just the sort of chemistry makeup of, of, of my, my wife and everything. But if it is the case with anyone else out there, uh, well, then pregnant sex is the best. I mean, no matter what, sex is amazing. If, if you're going into it with uh, an open mind, with an acceptance that there may be shame later. <laughs> if you can accept that you may be shamed later, uh, thinking back, there's nothing wrong with it. But in, And actually, I, I would argue that if you don't feel at least a minute amount of shame, you probably weren't doing it right. <laughs> but it, you have to be willing to be in that position because, I, you know, admittedly, no matter what, you're in a, a long-term relationship with anyone, there's going to be stale moments. And it's up to you, it's incumbent upon you as an individual to sort of raise that bar, to keep it interesting, to keep it exciting and fun for both parties, and to experiment. Not everyone's up for it, so you have to, you know, understand that that's, that's going to come. Uh, but, <laughs> a little play on words there. But, I mean, realistically, it's an exciting thing. And, you know, it, not only is it a, a true... God experiment. You are literally creating life. You and, and your partner. And that cannot be downplayed at all. Because you are literally taking nothing. 
except for your passion, your lust, your chemistry, and literally creating another human being. But there is like another element to that, which is the insane passion and fun of it. And that is just times 10 during that growth process. And it seems like the more I'm talking about, the weirder it actually is. <laughs> like, I don't know why that is. But you know what? It's a good time. It's a lot of fun. And that's where I'm going to end it. Pregnant sex. Do not underrate it. It is fantastic. It's amazing. And women, you pregnant women out there, give in to the love because it is amazing. And you are amazing. And that's really all there is for it. And that's going to do it for another nine cents. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website ninecentspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at ninecentspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Undercroft, Facebook, Twitter, or MySpace page for Nine Cents and get updated on weekly topics. I'm also now on Google+, so add me to your circles there for updates. You can also listen to the show through Radio Free Satan, or download the show Monday nights through my RSS feed found at ninecentspodcast.com, or subscribe via iTunes by searching Nine Cents. And don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. If you'd like to meet other Satanists, visit undercroft at satannet.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit Radio Free Satan, an online streaming radio station. Thank you so much for joining me once again. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!